The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us from overseas. Thank you for being with us again. I also want to welcome new listeners in Oregon who are tuning in to us on KXL. Thanks for joining us today. In the next hour, we're going to be talking with former Ambassador and Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs and currently Professor of Diplomacy and International Politics, Mr. Nicholas Burns. We're turning our attention to Syria, where we face a growing crisis without any good options. And while the mainstream press is busy getting us all worked up about the cancellation of White House tours and the poor children whose field trips will be ruined, more than 80,000 people have been murdered in Syria. One million and counting have fled to other countries, and over two million have been displaced from their homes and villages. We have a disaster of epic proportions taking place, and during the next hour, we're going to do what we do each and every week here on the Costa Report and pull back the covers and try to understand whether this is a matter that requires immediate U.S. intervention or one we should stay out of. And we're fortunate to have an expert with us today who is going to help us separate fact from fiction. But before Nicholas Burns joins us, let me tell you a little bit about him. Burns was born in Buffalo, New York, and raised in Wellesley, Massachusetts, one of my favorite areas of the country. He earned his undergraduate degree from Boston College and the Sorbonne, and his master's degree in international studies from Johns Hopkins. He's also the recipient of a dozen honorary degrees. Prior to joining the Foreign Service, Burns worked for AT International, an organization which provided economic assistance to third world nations. From 1980 to 85, he served in the U.S. embassies in Egypt and Mauritania, and following that as the American Consulate General in Jerusalem. But this was just the start of a 27-year career which led to serving on the White House Security Council for five years and as our ambassador to Greece and to NATO. By 2005, Burns was appointed Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Then in 2008, he announced his retirement from the Foreign Service after amassing a long and very distinguished track record. Today, Mr. Burns teaches diplomacy and international politics at Harvard and sits on the boards of more organizations and foundations than we really have time to go into today, uh, from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress to the Atlantic Council. And when he is not teaching and working to preempt calamity, he is busy authoring a regular column in the Boston Globe. I often hear from listeners who complain about a, a, a mass confusion between facts and rhetoric that's disguised as facts. So let me just take a moment to say this. 
if you're looking for someone who's going to lay the facts on the line, no matter how messy or politically inconvenient, I can think of very few people with more on-the-ground experience and integrity than our guest today. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report Mr. Nicholas Burns. Thank you for being with us today, Mr. Burns. Thanks very much, Rebecca. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, we, we have a lot to talk about, so I don't want to waste any time before jumping right into Syria. So, so for listeners who may not be following the chaos that is going on in Syria, would you mind laying out the situation in a way that we can all understand it? Well, Syria is a country, Arab country, situated in the heart of the Arab world in Levant, uh, surrounded by Iraq and Turkey and Jordan and Israel. So it's a strategically very important country. Uh, since the Arab revolutions began two years ago, Syria has been in chaos and now revolution. There has been um, a, a mass protest movement against the government of um, Bashar al-Assad, who is an autocratic dictator. Um, the country is unfortunately divided among very, uh, uh, quite a number of, um, of competing ethnic groups, a majority Sunni population, minority Alawite population. There are Kurd and Christian populations, Circassian populations as well. And um, the government has used massive force to put down protests that began nearly two years ago, so much so the government has used artillery and civil against civilian neighborhoods. They've used uh, fighter aircraft to attack civilians. And the casualties, as you said at the, at the top of your program, have been horrific. More than 80,000 people have been killed. More than 3 million people are refugees, either in Syria or to neighboring countries. The United Nations said 10 days ago they thought those refugee numbers might double or triple in the next year. The great fear, of course, is that this civil war is going to continue. Many more people will lose their lives. There will be massive destruction in the country. And a lot of people think now that if Syria... Even if um, Assad is driven for power, Syria might end up um, truncated into two or three or four parts. It might just divide along these ethnic lines. So it's a very serious situation. And the other danger, of course, is that the war might spill over its borders into either northern Israel, more likely into Lebanon, which is a very unstable country, possibly into Jordan, Iraq. So it's, a, it's about as serious a crisis as there is in the world today from a humanitarian point of view, but also from a political point of view. Now, recently, you've equated this situation to the Bosnian War, where nations who could have put down the bloodbath much earlier sat by the sidelines much too long before they, they jumped in. Um, is this a situation where there are no good options, but something has to be done? Because, as you point out, these numbers of displaced persons that are escaping tyranny may jump from 3 million to 6 million in, in a very short amount of time. Well, clearly something has to be done, and, and I'm proud to say that, that the President, President Obama has led the way in humanitarian aid. The United States is the largest donor of humanitarian aid to those refugees, the people who are suffering. That could be better coordinated by the United Nations, and frankly, some of the surrounding com countries, particularly in the Arab world, could do more to provide humanitarian support to the Syrian people. The big question is, should there be some kind of international military intervention on the ground to try to support the rebel army, to drive Assad from power, and then to stabilize the country. President Obama has decided and has had held this view since the very beginning of the crisis that the United States should not put, not put American troops on the ground. I think he's right in that. We just ended the Iraq war in December 2011. We're still in Afghanistan. We still have 60,000 troops there, and we're not out yet. 
And the idea of putting another American army into an Arab country, I think no one has a stomach for it. And it might be a disastrous uh, decision if, if it were made, because once you intervene in a country, particularly if you're able to overthrow the government, you own um, you know, the responsibility, you own the country, have the responsibility to stay and help the people there. That's what happened to us in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there really isn't any sizable number of people in the Congress in either political party who believe that we should do that. And the president has held fast and, is, is, and very stubbornly has decided not to put troops in the ground. However, there are some things that can be done militarily by the United States, by some of the Arab countries in Turkey, that I think would quicken the end of this civil war. Number one, we could try to arm the moderate rebel groups, strengthen them, because right now the rebel groups are outgunned by the Assad government. The Assad government has a very sophisticated military. They're being resupplied by Russia, by Iran, and by Hezbollah. And these rebel groups need help. The problem with that, of course, is that the rebel group, there are many different rebel groups. There's no one rebel army. Some of them are quite responsible. Others are radical Islamic groups. And so it's difficult to figure out which group to help. And you never know if you put arms into the country, even into a moderate group. They may not end up in the hands of radical Islamic groups. At some point, those guns could be turned against us in some future scenario. So the president's been cautious about that. I think probably too cautious. I think along with Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, the United States could mount a resupply of weaponry to those moderate rebel groups that would strengthen them and enhance the likelihood that they might emerge victorious at the end of this war. And therefore, we'd have a relationship with them and some influence. That's one thing we could do. Well, now, we have to go to a, a commercial break, but I sure. think just to summarize the point that you're making is that we can provide arms, but as you point out, uh, it's very difficult to identify which groups to provide those arms to, and we have a history of those arms coming back to bite us in the rear end, in the tush. So uh, I, I do think that that's, you know, it, it's, it sounds like a, a good approach, but, uh, but we're going to have to, you know, be very judicious. And, and how we go about doing that. So we have to take a short commercial break. When we come back, I do want to explore the uh, the problem of Russia backing the Assad uh, government and how that plays out for the United States as well. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. It would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. 
However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information. That is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So it seems that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. Hi everyone, it's MZ, proud to finally be on track to optimal health. You see, I recently spent a week hosting Doc Wallach at my home for the big Super Health Sunday that we put on. This event was an enormous success. This man of 73 looks and acts at least 20 years younger, and it's all because he practices what he preaches. Nothing stops Doc from taking his supplements multiple times a day. Well, it finally rubbed off on me. I'm taking the Healthy Start Pack from Longevity twice a day now. I'm feeling much better. Better, and I've already lost eight pounds in less than two weeks. My cravings for junk food are gone, and I'm actually starting to look a lot better, too. I know, that's not saying much. We set up a new website, kscohealth.com, and I invite you to visit it and become a customer for the Healthy Start Pack and other wonderful Longevity Health products that really work. Support and promote your own good health while you support our KSCO independent operation. Go to kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com and start up. For many families, going out for Easter brunch is as big a part of the celebration as Easter baskets and the Easter bunny. Join us this Easter at Severino's Bar and Grill and indulge in a stunning array of the freshest foods with our special Easter champagne brunch from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Our chef is preparing a feast complete with scrumptious seafood, a carving station with Angus prime rib and honey glazed ham, traditional eggs benedict, an omelet station, and a grand assortment of Easter favorites. Only $33 for adults, $16 for children 10 and under. Reservations are limited, so call today, 831 888-8987. Severino's Bar and Grill this Easter. Dave Allen here. Remember this. Sunday is 4 p.m. for an array of different world-acclaimed eclectic esoteric conversations and guests. Every Sunday at 4 p.m. right here on AM KSL and realize why I'm not going nowhere. I've got to stay. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former ambassador to NATO and undersecretary of political affairs, Mr. Nicholas Burns. And before the break, you were pointing out that this is a very complex, messy situation, and there's more than one way to end the continued carnage in, in Syria. And one of the options is to arm certain rebel factions. So how does the Russian support of the Assad regime factor into this? Well, it gives the Assad regime a tremendous advantage, as you can imagine, because Russia is one of the major arms ex uh, exporters in the world. They have sophisticated technology, and so it means that the government is much more powerful than these rebel forces who are really fighting on emotion. They're fighting for their families. They're fighting for their villages because the Assad regime has been brutal and violent in suppressing these uprisings. Iran is also supporting them as well, the, the Assad government, with weapons, which makes this doubly problematic for the United States. And Hezbollah, the terrorist group in Lebanon, is also supplying them. So right now, there's no central organizer of the international effort to help the rebels. 
That's something that the United States could do, I think, more effectively. And another military option would be what we call a no-flight zone. It would be would not put American troops in the ground, but America, American and, and Turkish and Arab airplanes would effectively own the sky. They would take out Assad's um, radar. They would prohibit him from flying his aircraft. That would take away a major advantage that the Assad regime has. But if we step in with even uh, supporting arms to certain rebel factions, and of course uh, there's a big debate about which of those rebel factions should be supported and can be trusted, uh, aren't we just pitting ourselves against Russian support and Iranian and Hezbollah support for Assad? I think the reality here is that Assad is going to fall at some point. I don't think he can survive this politically. But if he hangs on for another six months to a year, the death toll is going to be catastrophic for the Syrian people. So I don't think that doing nothing is an option for the United States. The president's made the right decision not to put American troops in the ground. I think that would be extremely difficult because we wouldn't know when we'd be able to get those troops back. We would have great responsibility for what happened in the country. It would take a tremendous number of troops because the Syrian government is quite powerful. So I do think doing something... And these are difficult options. They all have problems. But arming moderate groups and considering a no-flight zone and organizing the supply of arms, all that will likely hasten the end of this war. But we have a situation where we're arming the rebels and the Russians are arming the Assad um, tyranny. I mean, when you strip everything away, isn't that what we're saying? The United States is now not supplying arms. No, but I'm saying when we do supply arms, if we if we take that if we take that course, isn't that effectively what it's going to boil down to? The Russians are supplying Assad, and we're supplying the rebels. Will it be true that we'll be supplying the rebels and Russia Assad? Yes. So at least we're making it a fair fight, is what we're saying. The alternative is is to see the uh, the Syrian government continue to inflict this horrible, horrible attack uh, on on the civilian population. You know, it's hard to make the case for preemptive anything in the United States these days. I mean, we waited until we were attacked at Pearl Harbor before we got dragged into World War II and after it had been underway for years. And, and we waited until the attacks of 9-11 to go after al-Qaeda. Um, just exactly, in your view, what would have to happen for the president to order American troops into Syria? Well, um, you, you know, ideally, you'd want to have the support of the international community. You'd want to have other countries go with you. You'd want to have a U.N. Security Council resolution to, to support it. And, and none of that's going to happen in Syria. Russia and China would veto any Security Council resolution. Uh, and so I think the Obama administration is right not to put troops in the ground. I think that's a quagmire for the United States. We shouldn't go down that road, but there are things we can do. I think there's increasing support in the Congress for some of those other options that I've been outlining. Uh-huh. Um, uh, unless, of course, uh, people step in with weapons such as um, nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all with North Korea being so starved for attention that, and they've been supplying uh, arms to Iran for so long. I mean, I, I think what happens is the trail of arms gets longer and longer. And we suddenly have a situation where North Korea might supply Iran, Iran might supply Syria. It's hard for the person on the street to just keep track of this. I don't think that, that, that anyone's going to introduce nuclear weapons into this conflict. That would be very unwise. Nobody would have an incentive to do that. It would be very difficult to do. 
without being detected by the United Nations, by the United States and others. So I don't think that's a danger. But, you know, we have to deal with the world as it is. And it would be better if the United States could just, you know, not intervene in other countries and, and stay at home. That would be the best possible alternative. But we don't live in that kind of a world. We've made some difficult decisions, and I think sometimes incorrect decisions, in going too far militarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in and, and staying too far, we certainly stayed too long in both Afghanistan and Iraq. But we also can't make the decision just to retire, to retreat, to isolate ourselves, and to pull back completely because we're the strongest country in the world. We have enormous responsibility for what happens in the world, and it's in our self-interest to see this war stop. So I'm not for putting American troops on the ground, but I do think we've got to be more active, more of a leader, and organize the Turks. Turkey's a very powerful country. The Arab countries, they all want to help in this effort against the Assad government. Israel wants to see the Assad government fall at this point. So there is international support. The only countries really supporting Assad are the autocratic regimes, Russia, China, and Iran. But they're not friends of ours anyway. Yeah, that's right. And we don't really lose anything by supporting the rebels there. Um, But what do you say to people who say, we we can't keep afford to be sending arms and financial support and aid to keep the peace in these countries? I mean, we have threats breaking out everywhere. And we we just, our economy is is struggling. We can't afford to do this anymore. What, What do you tell people? Well, I think, I think people are right to be concerned about the cost of this and, frankly, about American lives. If That's one reason I don't support putting American troops into Syria. But in terms of the cost, there are lots of conflicts in the world, unfortunately, where we don't intervene. The president, any president, has to be very, very selective in deciding when to use American military force or even when to spend many millions of dollars to send arms to another country and to support, in this case, a rebel group, the president has to use his, his best judgment. And I think President Obama, one thing I really like about him, he's very cautious when it comes to the military. He's not trigger-happy. He doesn't believe we should be intervening everywhere. As you remember, in Libya in 2011, he held out to the last moment not to use American air power. We didn't put troops in the ground to oust Gaddafi. He finally did when it was clear... And he, he accepted a lot of criticism for that. He did. And, you know, this is these are tough decisions. And there are people who are on both sides of this issue that hold to their views passionately. And we elect him to make the best decision. And I really think the president's done quite well at during these looking at these Arab revolutions and deciding when do we put our best foot forward to help and when do we hold back because we simply can't intervene everywhere. And we can't give money to every country and so you've got to be selective but you've got a government that has murdered 80,000 of their own citizens I mean what's the threshold what's the number at at which point you have to you're compelled morally and ethically to intervene I think that is the case here and that's why I do believe that we should be in effect much more active as a leader in organizing the humanitarian support to the affected people in -hmm. supplying arms to to the moderate groups and perhaps even at some point considering a no-flight zone, I do think that is worthy of American, that kind of intervention, because of this huge humanitarian crisis. And, and you're right, at some point, sometimes these crises reach a point where one has an ethical and a moral obligation to use the power that we have to stop human suffering. We reached that point in Bosnia a long time ago. Absolutely. Now, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We have to take another commercial break, but we'll sure. be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. You asked. 
asked and we listened. The new and improved paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle is now available in bookstores everywhere, including airports across the country. If you've been hemming and hawing about not having time to go online or pick up a copy, well, now you don't have any excuses. Find out why government gridlock, terrorism, epidemic obesity, crime on Wall Street, even problems with education and health care have an evolutionary basis to them. Because when you do, you'll never look at our problems the same way. So pick up the freshly printed paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle. Don't wait. Do it now. Give yourself a real reason to feel optimistic. That's The Watchman's Rattle, available everywhere you are. Ford is generating more positive buzz than any other manufacturer in the world for the second year in a row. And you can always find the best deal on the Ford of your choice at North Bay Ford in Santa Cruz. Hello, I'm Jeff Winterhalder. North Bay Ford is a locally owned dealership with low overhead, friendly, small town values, and the best deals on new Ford cars, trucks, and RVs. Get this, Jeff's deal at North Bay Ford. Get huge savings at the end of March spring sale at North Bay Ford. Get an extra $500 Ford credit bonus cash on 2013 model year. Fusion Gas, Escape, Edge, and Flex. Get an extra $500 retail customer cash on select 2012 and 13 model year Fiesta Focus and 2013 model year C-Max Hybrid, Fusion Gas, and Escape. Get a $1,000 Ford credit bonus cash on 2012 and 13 F-150 and Super Duty Gas and Diesel. Look first to your friends and neighbors at locally owned North Bay Ford. 1999 Soquel Avenue, Santa Cruz, or on the web at NorthBayFord.com. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Lomond Market. This week, we are featuring sweet California one-pound clamshell strawberries, two for $5, and local-grown asparagus, two ninety-nine a pound. From Mexico, we have mini seedless watermelon, two for $6, and large ripe pineapples, two for $6. We also have a special price on green beans, $1.49 a pound. From Chile, we have Bartlett pears, $1.69 a pound. Washington large russet potatoes, $0.39 cents a pound. And California garnet yams, $0.99 cents a pound. In organics, we are featuring one-pound clamshell strawberries, $3.99 each. And organic asparagus, $5.49 a pound. We also have many other in-store specials. So come, check out our great selection of fresh produce at Ben Loman Market. Santa Cruz is once again proud to host Operation Surf and our nation's heroes. April 14th through the 19th, wounded active duty service members will take part in an epic life-changing experience at Cowles Beach. Through the healing power of the ocean and surfing, these wounded heroes to whom we owe so much will overcome challenges and build a new understanding of their life's potential. To learn how you can take part in this amazing event and represent our community, visit OperationSurf.org or check them out on Facebook. That is all. This Sunday on Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, the author of Pandora's Lunchbox joins us live to explain how processed foods took over the American diet. We'll also take a look at what seems to be the never-ending boom for the craft brewing industry and a new push to throw dinner parties using fewer ingredients than the number of guests. Get the latest food, beverage, and travel news Sunday mornings 8 to 10, live right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your lifestyle information source. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest is foreign policy and diplomacy expert Nicholas Burns. And before the break, you were pointing out that there does come a point, as uh, it happened in Bosnia, where we have a moral and ethical imperative to intervene. And I, I think we can certainly make the case that the time to take some action, um, such as arming the rebels or creating a no-fly zone and also building international support for the rebels, has, has certainly come. Now, now moving right along, we, we have institutions such as NATO and the United Nations, which when they were formed, we had hopes that they they would bring stability and peace to humankind, and you've served as our U.S. ambassador to NATO. So let me ask you, what role are these institutions going to play in the future? Because ideally, this would be, you know, in the case of Syria, this would be something that the United Nations would take action on. And we just don't, I don't know why they're so weak or timid or slow to be decisive and to take strong actions to put these kinds of things down. Well, the United Nations is a very imperfect institution. I mean, it does a lot of good things in the world, but it's often stymied and frozen and can't act because the, the major powers disagree with each other. You know, there are five permanent members of the Security Council. If one of them vetoes the resolution, then that resolution does not go forward. So in the, in the case of Syria, let's say the United States wanted a U.N. Security Council resolution to arm the moderate rebels, Russia and China would veto that, so it couldn't happen. So the United States has to look for other allies to work with. I think President Obama's instinct is to work with other countries, not to try to act unilaterally, not to put everything on our shoulders, but to, you know, share the burden. And that's a very good instinct for any president to have. NATO's a good vehicle for the United States. We've, we were in Bosnia in the mid-90s with NATO. Mm-hmm. We fought in Kosovo with NATO in 1999. And NATO has been with us in Iraq and has, excuse me, in Afghanistan, has led the Afghan mission since 2003, 2004. So, we're always better off and we'll have more credibility if we're working with other countries, in this case our alliance, NATO, or with the U.N. when that's possible. So do organizations like NATO have a role to play in, say, something like Syria? Um, it's possible that NATO could decide um, to act together. I don't think there would be no consensus in NATO, no agreement to put NATO troops in the ground, but it's possible you could get a NATO effort to arm the rebels, at some point, not right now, but that could develop if the situation worsens. Possible to see NATO provide air defense for some of the surrounding com- countries. Right now, NATO does have Patriot missile batteries in Turkey at the request of Turkey, which is right next door to Syria in case mm-hmm. Turkey is attacked by the Syrian government. So NATO's still already involved in the margins of this conflict. I think if it worsens, if we see the death toll tragically mount, then I think there's a possibility that NATO might have to do something together. I, I just... Under no circumstances right now do I see it uh, lessening unless the rebels are armed. I mean, this seems like a really unfair fight at the moment. Wouldn't you agree? It is an unfair fight. I mean, the rebels are, you know, they're they're getting arms from some of the Arab countries. Um, There is some money that's coming in from the Arab world for that. But as I said before, they're they're outgunned in a significant way. And so that's why the civil war has, has gone on so long because um, it's not been a fair fight. But the rebels have, what they have is they have um, a lot of people on their side. The majority of people in the country support the rebel movement. It's largely a Sunni movement. That's the largest uh, group in the country. The government is an Alawite, a faction of Shiism, and that's a minority coalition. So they have people on their side. They've got the majority of the country behind them. They've got a motion behind them 
frankly, they've got a right to fight for their communities because the Assad government has come into civilian neighborhoods in Aleppo, in Damascus, in Homs and Hamas, some of the other cities, and used really brutal power, and they've killed an incredible number of civilians. So I think at some point the rebel alliance is going to overwhelm the government. One just can't tell when that point will come, and in the meantime, many, many more people will kill. And so the president has got to assess when do we reach the point where we just have to intervene, Again, not with American troops on the ground, but to be more active because of that moral imperative that you and I talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're getting close to a point where, there, as you point out in your wonderful article in the Boston Globe, um, we're getting to a point where uh, we can't do nothing. That that uh, that I think says it all. We can't do nothing. We have to do something, and whatever we do, we have to commit to and understand that it's not just an in or out situation. And certainly, it does not have to mean troops on the ground. I, I think we're so fatigued by uh, Iraq and Afghanistan that um, you know no one's going to support putting troops on the ground anywhere, no matter how badly it gets. Which is uh, which is a shame uh, because I think uh, if that moral imp- Imperative were to require it, we we would we would act um, maybe too slowly, and that's a concern. You know, this is like um, making the second wife pay for the uh, the crimes of the first wife. You know, um, it's it's just not a uh, it's not a a fair situation for countries that are going through the chaos that Syria is going through right now. you know, a lot of Americans are are really disappointed in the United Nations. There's uh, any number of people that are outraged that we foot the majority of the bill for the United Nations, and yet uh, there's a process clearly in place, as you point out, where uh, you know you cannot get a security measure through uh, if there's a veto. And um, uh, so, I, I, as a diplomat, you're a, I can tell you're a fan of the United Nations. Um, how does the United Nations get out of this gridlock? and paralysis that we're seeing? Well, the United Nations is only going to work well and work decisively on these issues of war and peace if there's agreement among the permanent five members of the Security Council. These are the most powerful countries in the world. They're the five founders back in 1946-47. So it's Russia and China and the United States and Britain and France. And if they're divided, then they veto each other. I think I'm realistic about the United Nations. It does some good things in the world. The International Atomic Energy Agency is is a very, very efficient agency that monitors uh, nuclear proliferation and tries to stop countries from going nuclear when they shouldn't. The U.N. Development Program does very good work in trying to assist poor people in the world. But the U.N. does other things very poorly. So it's kind of a mixed bag, and we have to be realistic about it. But, you know, it was founded by the United States. It was the vision of Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. It is in our largest city in New York, and we are the world's superpower. And so it's, it's often an effective institution for us, and it works for the United States, not, not always against American interests. I, I just don't know if it's delivered on its vision. Well, I mean, I, Franklin Roosevelt had a vision at the end of the Second World War, and of course he died just before the war ended, tragically that we shouldn't repeat the mistakes of the First World War. He had served in the Woodrow Wilson administration. He saw when the Senate rejected in 1920 the League of Nations, the United States entered a period of isolation from the world, and we were not part of the effort to try to check the rise of fascism in the 1930s of Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo, and we paid for that. 
by by being dragged into the Second World War and not opposing those fascist powers when they were weaker in the 1930s. So Roosevelt was determined that we wouldn't repeat that mistake. He thought the the victors of the Second World War, the United Nations, should should band together to try to make sure that those world wars didn't develop in the future. And so I think the United Nations is only going to work well when we have that common strategic aim by the largest part parties. And, you know, the Russians in the Soviet period, the Soviet Union, and for most of the Russian period since 1991, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russians have been very difficult. The Chinese have been, too. But the, the United, United Nations has been increasingly paralyzed. We can pretty much all agree on that. And and even missions such as, you know, uh, preventing nuclear proliferation has been a huge failure in North Korea, a failure in Iran. Uh, you know, the sanctions that they put against these countries have done nothing to discourage their ambitions. So, you know, I, I, I uh, look, I am a big fan of the United Nations. I'll go on record as saying that. And I, and I believe in diplomacy, uh, going to the ends of the earth on diplomacy before anybody ever uh, takes any action otherwise uh, but it has not delivered on its promise and i think it there are some sis- deeply troubling systemic issues there uh, which nato doesn't seem to have and it feels to me like uh, in the case of syria this may be something that nato will have to take a look at through um, working with countries such as uh, turkey but i may be wrong about that we have to take another commercial break when we come back we'll pick up right where we left off you're listening to the costa report Are you looking for fresh, creative, and healthy ideas to bring to your table? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. Whether it's Sunday night family dinner or a lunchtime indulgent with your favorite salad ingredients, let your culinary imagination soar with more than 30 varieties of salad blends that range from sweet and subtle to zesty and bold. For the ultimate in fresh convenience, try Dole's all-inclusive salad kits with farm-fresh lettuces, crunchy vegetables, and all-natural Dole specialty dressings and toppings. To learn more about Dole salads and for inspiring recipe ideas, visit dole.com slash salads or like Dole Salad Guide on Facebook. With so many delicious and convenient choices, it's easy to find nutritious inspiration with Dole salads. You'll never guess what happened, Fran. I got a new job. No way. After all this time, somebody offered you a job? Hey, it's not like that. I found a new secret on how to get a job. What's your secret? Sure. Goodwill. Tracy, Goodwill's not new. They've been around forever. I go to Goodwill when I clean out my closet or garage. Or shop for less when you need a nice new outfit, huh? Right. Hi, this is Lloyd Graff from Goodwill Industries. It's not supposed to be a secret. Because you drop off your donations and shop in Goodwill stores, more than 12,000 people received employment assistance last year. We provide a vital bridge between employees and employers. Our one-stop career center provides critical, high-quality employment services for job seekers. We help them learn new work skills, get on-the-job training, plus resume and interview assistance at no cost to the employee or the employer. So a big thanks for your past support. You allow us to live up to our slogan, our business is changing lives. 
I've been talking about Sleep Number for a while now and how much I love my bed. My goodness, it's made such a tremendous difference in the way both Celeste and I sleep. My Sleep Number bed is up there around 100. I like it nice and firm. Celeste, 80 or so. What's great about the people at Sleep Number, they're always looking for ways to improve the way we sleep. And they've done it again with a memory foam bed. The all-new Sleep Number memory foam bed is a perfect combination of cool contouring foam and the unique adjustability of the Sleep Number bed. Dual air technology. That's what makes their memory foam bed unique. At the heart of the mattress are two individually adjustable air chambers that allow you to personalize your comfort. It's memory foam redefined. You only get this bed at a Sleep Number store. You can enjoy introductory savings of $400 on the all-new Sleep Number memory foam bed. And right now, during their white sale, you can stock up and save on their exclusive bedding collection. There are 400 Sleep Number stores nationwide, but the one you want is on 41st Avenue in Capitola Mall. Say hello to Carlos, the store manager, and be sure and tell him that Charlie Friedman from the Happy Hour program on KSCO is the one who sent you down. It's National Start Your Business Month, and LegalZoom wants to help you get your business started right. Whether you're setting up an LLC, S-corporation, sole proprietorship, or nonprofit, LegalZoom takes care of you from start to finish. LegalZoom's not a law firm and provides self-help services at your specific direction, but there's so much more. Now every LLC and incorporation package includes a fully functional version of easy-to-use business accounting software at $269 value free. Be sure to enter Brilliant in the referral box at checkout. Start your business at LegalZoom.com today. Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. They make food cheap by taking the food out of it and by making taxpayers subsidize its costs. Thus, the cheap food they promise is really the expensive food they deliver. To find true value, tune in KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down the real deal of food. If you have a comment about the third law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the food chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former ambassador and undersecretary for political affairs and professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Mr. Nicholas Burns. And before the break, we were discussing the role of the United Nations and organizations such as NATO in terms of stopping the chaos and the murder in Syria particularly if the situation continues to devolve and spread to other countries. So let's now take a moment to talk a little bit about diplomacy. Uh, following the attacks on 9-11, um, the United States pretty much had the sympathy of the entire world. And as an experienced diplomat, where did we go wrong in capitalizing on that moment to strengthen our alliances and to build greater international consensus? Well, you know, I think President Bush made made the right decision, a very difficult one, to intervene in Afghanistan. You remember the three and a half weeks after we were hit on 9-11, because he had to go after al-Qaeda and make sure that that threat, you know, didn't hit us again. And and that was a successful intervention. And, and President Bush and President Obama have weakened al-Qaeda. They're a shadow of what they used to be. Um, and I think it's unlikely al-Qaeda would be able to amount the same kind of attack again on the United States. But we ended up uh, occupying Afghanistan. We're still there, 12 years after the event. And uh, the majority of our troops won't come out until 2014. In Iraq, we also stayed a very long time in the, in the intervention there. I think we lost some international support. There's no question about it. Once we were occupying two Muslim countries, it was very unpopular in the Arab world. It wasn't fully understood. A lot of our European allies turned against us, especially on Iraq. So... Presidents need to be very judicious, very careful 
about when they use American military force. Normally, presidents don't commit American troops unless vital American interests are at stake. Vital meaning the issue is of mortal concern and of mortal danger to the United States. I'm not sure that either Iraq or Afghanistan, after the initial intervention, met that test. And so one of the lessons I think we all can learn is that we have a, an outstanding military. And we have people who do, in the military, of course, put their lives on the line for, for the rest of us in American society. We owe them a lot, but we can't ask them to do too much. And we should only deploy them very selectively when, when the national interest dictates it. And the rest of the time, we've got to rely on our political influence, on our wits. We've got to work with allies to get our way in the world. And that's what diplomacy is all about. And, and the United States is very good at diplomacy. We have a first-rate foreign service. We have a very good State Department. We have in Secretary John Kerry a very experienced diplomat who spent a long time in the U.S. Senate working on these issues. So we've got to emphasize diplomacy more in the way that we interact with the rest of the world. So when you say we've got to emphasize diplomacy more, what does that really mean? What it means is, is that um, we've got to do the slow, patient work of assembling coalitions to get our way in the world, of working with other countries sometimes to compromise uh, on, on a specific issue, rather than just thinking that the military can always be the answer, because it rarely can be the only way that the United States acts in the world or gets anything done in the world or resolves problems in the world. Sometimes the military is the answer, but many times it's not. And the people who recognize that, I think, most are our generals and the people who serve in the military who they will do what the president asks them to do because they're loyal and because, um, of course, the president is the commander-in-chief. But I think that they want uh, to make sure that they're fighting for something that has the support of the American people and has support of countries uh, worldwide. And we certainly in Iraq lost that kind of support, both at home but also internationally after, after a period of time. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, uh, it was a tragedy that we went into Iraq and we involved uh, other countries in, in that decision when really we should have gone into Afghanistan. And then, you know, there's the question of people. I know that they wanted us to get out of Afghanistan sooner, but the reality is even pulling troops out, Afghanistan doesn't have an economy that can stand on its own two feet. And uh, and when we do pull out the last of our troops, we're really leaving them very vulnerable, uh, I think. And uh, and that concerns me a, a great deal. I know it concerns the military and, uh, and the White House as well. Um, at what point, uh, in your view, being a, a diplomacy expert, at what point is diplomacy just no longer an option? Because many times people say to me, by the time we march the military in there, it's like an admission that diplomacy has failed. Uh, do you feel that way? And at what point is diplomacy just n n no longer viable? Well, if you look at American history and look at how other countries have practiced diplomacy, there's a very tight connection between diplomacy and the military. So, for instance, when we ended the Bosnian War in 1995, we did it by two things. Richard Holbrook, brilliant American diplomat, now deceased tragically, died two years ago. Yes. He led the diplomatic effort for a ceasefire, but he was relying on the U.S. military to also bomb at the same time Bosnian Serb military targets. They were the aggressors in the war to get them to stop fighting. So it was a neat, very effective integration of diplomacy and the use of force. And sometimes you can actually use both simultaneously 
to meet American interests. But there are times because, you know, we live in a very, very difficult world where evil does exist. There's times when diplomacy doesn't work because, you know, you can't reason with someone like Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and 1940s. Well, well how about North Korea? So We've been back to, to the table... Yep. We've been back to the table so many times with North Korea, and each time they, you know, they give concessions on what they're going to do with their nuclear program, and every single time they've lied to us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what do you do in a situation like that? Where do you just, is it your belief you never stop talking? You, you keep going back to the table no matter how many times it takes? No. Uh, there are times when, you know, it's, it's fruitless to go back and, and talk. It can be and talk to uh, a difficult party. That was certainly true of the Nazi regime when they started World War II. We had to fight. It was true of Imperial Japan when they attacked us at Pearl Harbor in December 1941. We had to fight. So there are times when diplomacy does not work. In the case of North Korea, um, we um, North Koreans have lied to us. They've violated every agreement we've made with them back in 1994 in the Clinton yes. administration and the Bush administration in 2006 and 7. They have nuclear weapons. And so the United States is not about to use military force or attack preemptively because North Korea has nuclear weapons. They could use them against the South Koreans or the Japanese or any other of their neighbors. Right. It would be a catastrophic situation. So we're trying to contain the problem. We're trying to convince China to be tougher in the way that China talks to the North Koreans and trying to convince the North Koreans that they have no other option but to live peacefully with South Korea. That's called diplomacy in a very difficult situation. We can't get our way, but we can certainly try to prevent the worst from happening. But even massive starvation and cutting off fuel to the country and, and all these just drastic measures have done nothing to quell their nuclear ambitions. I mean, this is becoming existential. This is um, North Korea is one of the most difficult problems that, that we face worldwide. There's no question about it. And I think the only way to be effective is to be tightly aligned with South Korea and Japan. They're both our treaty allies. And with the Chinese, because the Chinese don't want to see North Korea use military force either. And you have this extraordinarily difficult situation where this 29-year-old leader, Kim Jong-un, is making these absolutely irresponsible statements about, you know, using nuclear weapons against <laughs> South Korea, threatening war against the United States. Most of it's bluster, but mm -hmm. you do have to pay attention. You've got to be very clear as... Secretary Chuck Hagel, our Secretary of Defense, said yesterday, we are watching this situation. Well, and I hope you're right. underway with South Korea, hopefully to convince the North Koreans to back down. I hope you're right, and I hope it is bluster. And I don't see how any further diplomacy with North Korea leads anywhere. But, you know, maybe that's just me. I think you never stop talking, because I think when you stop talking, all is lost. Now, I know before we run out of time, I know listeners are going to want to know where they can go to keep in touch with you. Do you have a website, or are you on social media? I'm on Twitter. You're on so, Twitter. Okay, people are going to start tweeting you. <laughs> at R. Nicholas Burns. That's my, Twitter, uh, that's my Twitter address. I'm also on the Harvard Kennedy School uh, website. I teach at Harvard University. I'm happy to answer emails if people want to write with their thoughts, with their comments, or any questions. And Terrific. And, and they can also go to the Boston Globe site to catch your column. Is that right? They sure can. Yes, they can. Yeah. Okay, well, that's our program for today. But before we let you go, I do want to thank you for taking time to shed light on the very difficult decisions our, our country now faces. Thank you, Mr. Burns. Thank you very much.
if your station is leaving us after the first hour. My guest next week is former congressman and our nation's first undersecretary of Homeland Security, Mr. Asa Hutchinson. Hutchinson is heading up the NRA's National School Shield Program and will be here to talk about why security, not gun control, is key to protecting our children. And perhaps we'll find out whether he is or isn't running for governor, president, or any other office. There are so many rumors out about Asa Hutchinson, I can't even keep up with them. Don't miss Asa Hutchinson next week right here on your favorite weekly news magazine. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we take your calls and find out what's on your mind this week. If you listen to talk shows in the news today, you might come away with the impression that the root of all our problems are politics or economics. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and everyone blames the Chinese. But take a hard look at where the blame game has gotten us. That's why I'm asking you to pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in paperback and as an ebook too. And if you don't have time to read, there's an audio version so you can listen in your car or even on the beach. The book explains why complexity produces gridlock and what we have to do to start moving forward again. So pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at a bookstore near you or online retailer. Do it today. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. Hi, Jacoby here, host of Raising the Standards, right here on KFCO Saturdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Tune in and join me, Rachel, my co-host, our buddy Rick, and some of the most interesting folks in the world as we chat and play the best music on the planet. And remember, if at some point during the program you're not offended, well, you're just not listening. Raising the Standards, Saturdays here on KSEO, 3 to 5. AM 1080, KSCO, Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.